open your Bibles with me. Isaiah chapter 12. Have you ever gone through the exercise of imagining having a conversation with your younger self? Uh, I've done this, and I've just got to say, I've got some things that I would say to myself. Uh, one of the things I would tell my younger self is you need to load up on Apple stock, dude. Do it. Trust me, you'll be really happy that you did. But, you know, even in that, I say it a little tongue-in-cheek because that's just money. If I was having a conversation with my younger self, it would be a lot more about what really matters in life your relationship with Christ, your character, I'd also say to him, don't spend $5 on another date until you meet this beautiful girl named Katie Irwin and then spend all the money you got on her, okay? Now, interestingly enough, as we look at our text this morning, Isaiah is actually going to take us in an opposite direction. There's this repeated refrain. Look at verse 1 and then verse 4. It says, you will say in that day. That's your future voice. Have you ever thought what it would be like to have a conversation with your future self who's living in Jesus's messianic kingdom and asking them what's it like there? And, and more importantly, looking back on your life, what should I involve myself in? What matters? And as we take a look at the text this morning, Isaiah is going to give us four messages from our future self. Now, the first message is that your story matters. We'll see that in verse 1. The second message is that God is always enough. The third message is don't dry up. And the fourth message is boldly tell others about Jesus. So to put this in the theme of this series, this is your fully renovated self coming and having a conversation with you, a little chat. So let's listen. Isaiah 12, verses 1 through 6. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for Though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth, shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. So let's take a look at this first message, your story matters. Now, it turns out that Isaiah in this text is telling us about our deepest problem. He says in verse one, you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger has turned away. 
Our deepest problem in life is not whether we will choose to love God, it's whether God would choose to love us. And as you look at the Bible, the, the gospel message in the Bible tells us something really, really awesome. God has chosen to love you. He's chosen to love you. That's the greatest part of your story. Now, your story matters. Ray Ortland Jr. says this, God gives you your own experience of what it means to be saved. There are no secondhand salvations. So if you're having a conversation with your future self, they're going to say you need to celebrate what God's done in your life. He's done incredible things. He's chosen to love you. You know, it, it was interesting. I remember back in my college days, I was serving in ministry, and students would get up, and they would tell their story about how they came to know Jesus, and sometimes they would preface their story of salvation and say, you know, my story is pretty boring, and then they would go on to talk about how they came to know Jesus as a child, and they grew up in the church, and they've always followed the Lord. In other words, they're kind of saying, listen, I, I didn't have this like crazy come to Jesus experience. Now, your future self, if you're thinking that way, is pulling their hair out right now. <laughs> they're saying, what are you talking about? Your story and what makes your story significant is not what was happening in your life when you came to know Jesus. It's the fact that he chose to love you. Look at what Isaiah says in the text. He says, your anger, Lord, has turned away. Now, this is deeply relational terms here. We had a conversation a couple of weeks ago about anger, and we acknowledged that our culture really doesn't like this emotion. It's not emotion that we're comfortable with. We treat it highly negatively. Anger is kind of neutral in, in one way. It's an emotion that God has created us to express, and we can express it in good ways and in wrong ways. But what we came to see about anger is that anger is an emotion that I experience when I'm actually invested in someone else. If I don't care about what happens to someone, that emotion is called contempt. I don't care what happens to you. Do what you want to do. I'm fine with that. But when I experience anger, I'm experiencing it because I actually love you enough to be affected by what you're doing. Now, the scriptures tell us that God experiences anger because our relationship with him has been broken. It's like going through a divorce. And this isn't a no-fault divorce. This is we've turned away from him, and of course, it hurts him. He doesn't love that. I was having a spiritual conversation with someone recently, and in the conversation, they knew I was a pastor, and they just start telling me about the things that they experience and understand with Christianity, and they say, you know, I really don't like this emphasis in the Christian message on the cross and sin. And the reason I don't like it is because it makes me feel like worthless as a person. That's all you guys talk about. He came from a background, by the way, where it, you know, religion was like a 
checklist and you got to check these boxes. And if, if you're not keeping up with checking the boxes, well, you're never going to measure up. And so he says, I wish that you would just focus on the message of love and nothing else. And then he turns to me and he says, well, what do you think, pastor? Now, let me just say this, okay? Never turn to a pastor and say, what do you think, unless you've got about 30 minutes on your hands, okay? What do we do week after week, right? We preach sermons. So I was trying to be succinct, but I said, you know, let me just frame this for you. The message of God's love is meaningless if we don't talk about sin and the cross. What does love really mean if if God's just a sentimental grandfather that just feels kindly towards everyone and he's never affected by what we do or say or what we think or how we act? The cross is so powerfully, and it so powerfully demonstrates God's love because it's in the cross we see the grace of God. There was nothing that I did to contribute to my salvation. God saw the state I was in, sent his son into the world, and he died in my place. I said to him, I love to use this expression, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And he was like, whoa, I've never heard that before. Did you make that up? And I was like, listen, man, I'm a preacher. There's not an original bone in our body. (laughs) Now, we mess up the gospel in two ways. The first way is we get that equation wrong. We add to the grace of God. The equation only works if we say Jesus plus nothing equals everything. The second I add something to nothing, I've messed up the gospel. The other way that we mess up the gospel is we water it down. So we turn good news into just news. The reason that good news is good news is because I was in a condition that was not good at all. I desperately needed God. He intervened, and Jesus came, took my sins upon himself, died in my place for me. Now, if it's not that, then it's just, hey, guess what? God loves you, and just go about your life. You're good. You're all set. Don't even think about him. You're fine. That's just news. That's just an update. That's a little tweet, like, hey, everyone, God loves you, move on. See, as Christians, we don't want to shy away from using the terms that the Bible uses about our condition before God. Sin, wrath, anger, even hell. The reason is, is because when we unpack those things and we come to realize that we can be made right with God, that's what makes the story really good. And that's what intensifies the love of God. You know, Paul says in Romans, right, while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Now that's real love. That's forgiveness. That's someone looking at a condition and saying, you hurt me but I choose to love you anyway, and I'm going to send my son into the world. Now, let's talk about the next message. You know, beyond just our story, our future self would want to emphasize something else. I want you to see something in verse 2. The text says, behold, God is my salvation. 
I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. I want you to see how deeply personal this relationship with God is. Our salvation is rooted in the person of God. Of God. In other words, God is enough. He's all you need. Now, if we were to talk to our future self, they would say to you, you are complicating trust. You're adding add-ons to trust. You're saying, I need to trust in the person of God, but also I need these additional things for my comfort and my security. Your future self would say, lose the add-ons and stick with the person of God himself. See, Isaiah describes God in an unusual way in the Hebrew in this passage. The ESV translates him as the Lord God. If you were looking at the NIV, it would be a little more literal to the Hebrew. The Lord, the Lord. The Hebrew actually reads, Yah, Yahweh. Yah, Yahweh. So Isaiah is overusing the personal name of God to reinforce that there is a personal possession in this relationship. He is your God. Now, why? Well, it turns out that we have possession in the relationship ultimately because God possesses us. He is your God because you belong to him. The Heidelberg Catechism, the first question that it answers is a beautiful question to answer. If you're unfamiliar with what a catechism is, it is a way that Christians have systematically trained younger believers for hundreds of years. The system's pretty simple. You hear a series of questions, and then they give them answers, and the young Christians memorize the questions and the answers to build their doctrinal understanding. Now, the first question in this catechism is, what is your only comfort in life and death? Now, is there a more existential need for people than to know what their only comfort is in life and in death? And the answer is beautiful. Let me read it to you. That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of the Heavenly Father, get this next part, not a hair can fall from my head. Instead, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Beautiful statement. And as you look at this statement, it's all scriptural. I can take you all over the Bible to show you the realities of this. God is your God. He is Yah Yahweh. He's your all in all. 
Now, let me tell you a little open secret about the Christian life. And I fear that a lot of Christians are missing this open secret. See, it turns out to experience joy. There's another existential need we all want, right? I want to feel happy. I want to feel satisfied. I want to feel good about my outlook. To experience joy in the Lord, you must first learn to trust the Lord. Why is that? Well, for one thing, I think we can all agree with this, that fear, anxiety, doubt, those things are joy killers in life. When I get all consumed on my problems and my outlook and, and I start fretting and worrying and being anxious, it's, it's impossible for me to experience joy. Why is that? Well, let's go to human psychology. In human psychology, there are a hierarchy of needs, right? So I need basic needs to be met before I can fulfill more existential needs in my life. And I would submit to you that security is a lower level need than joy. So if I don't feel secure, then how am I going to experience gladness in life? So... How do I develop this trust relationship in the Lord? Well, I submit the third message may be the answer. Don't dry up. Isaiah says, with joy, you will draw from the wells of salvation. I believe that one of the great enemies of life is drying up spiritually. Is losing that vital connectivity with God. If you think about a couple of analogies in life. The electric cord needs to be plugged into the wall socket, right? The hose needs to be plugged into the spigot. The tree needs its taproot deeply linked into the ground to receive the nutrients of the soil. In the same way, the Christian depends on the vital experience of their relationship with God throughout their life. Now, this analogy is really powerful when you think about it. Notice, first of all, that Isaiah uses this plural concept of well. He says there are wells. So this shows us something about God, that God is enough along the way. We're all on a spiritual journey. And what Isaiah is hearkening back to in this text is actually Exodus memories. If you look at verse 2, it's almost a direct quote of Exodus chapter 15, and that's the song of Moses after they have come across the Red Sea, and they're celebrating God showing up in a significant way. And if you know anything about the Exodus journey, that is the people of Israel leaving the land of Egypt, heading to the promised land, and what's in the middle? The desert. And what do you desperately need in the desert? Water. You know, there's incredible water stories in the Exodus account. You have Merah, when God made the water safe to drink. You have Elam, the delightful oasis. You have Rephidim, when 
God told Moses to strike the rock and the water gushed out. See, God is a God who provides refreshment along the way because he knows that you dry up and die in the desert. You need a continual supply of water. You need places of refreshment. And I submit to you that we are the drivers of this experience. We'll get to that a little more along the way, that there's no time and no place where God's not ready to meet with you and refresh you in your spirit. Now, notice one other thing about this analogy. Moses doesn't talk about cups of water. He talks about wells. Why is that significant? Well, God's enough along the way, but he's also always enough. There's a continual supply. His grace is abundant. When you think about a cup, if someone's to hand you a cup of water, they're meeting your need in the moment. But a well is something that you can continually draw from over and over and over again. I think about Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman in John 4. And she's at this well, and she's drawing water from it, and she says that this is Jacob's well. Now, if you do the math real quick, that means that this well has been producing water for these people for hundreds and hundreds of years. And then Jesus looks at her and he says, woman, if you knew who you were talking to right now, you would be asking me for living water and I would give it to you. Now in John 7, Jesus explains this living water a little more. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, in case we don't understand that metaphor there, John gives us a little add-on comment, and he says, now this he said about the Spirit. So the message seems clear. You don't dry up in the Christian life if you are drawing from the living water that you already have living in you, the Holy Spirit of God. Now, how do I do that? Well, Christians have been figuring this out for thousands of years. And really, it boils down to two pretty simple things. You have to meet with God individually and corporately. So meeting with God individually is a daily habit or rhythm that I create where I meet the living God through his living word. I pray, I meditate upon the scriptures, and it's in that space that the Holy Spirit of God is transforming me, and he's creating character in me to look like Jesus. Corporately speaking, the Bible says that I need to give and receive gifts that the Holy Spirit has given to each member of the local church. Now, I can't get those gifts, and I can't give those gifts if I'm by myself, if I'm a lone ranger. So I need the body of Christ together. And it turns out that this wilderness journey that we're on, the only reason we ever dry up is because we choose to stop accessing the living water. So I need to keep accessing it, keep meeting with God. 
And what happens when I dry up is this. One, it affects me spiritually and my soul. But two, I can't be the kind of giving person that God wants me to be in this life. You know, I like to use this analogy of a sponge when it talks about, when you think about how should we be giving towards others. As a Christian, you're like a sponge in the sense that you can drink from God's blessings regularly. It's like fresh water, and sponges are incredible with their capacity, right? They can take in a lot of water, but sponges have a saturation point. When that sponge is full, you can't even force another drop of water into that sponge. It won't drink anymore. So how do I get more fresh water into the sponge? The sponge must be wrung out, and then the sponge can absorb more fresh water. I believe in the Christian life, the wringing out process is taking the blessings that God has been inputting in my life for my personal walk and my corporate walk with God, and then trying to find other dry sponges and pouring the water into them. What happens when you don't pour the fresh water out of a sponge? It becomes moldy and mildewy. And I'm telling you, I've met Christians that are just like that. They've been sitting in church, listening to the same messages. Somehow a posture shift happened where instead of feeling blessed by the message of God, they're sitting in the back of the room. No offense to anyone in the back of the room right now that I'm not talking about you. They're in the back of the room with their arms folded, picking apart everything they're hearing. Is that the joyful life that God calls us to live as a Christian? And he doesn't even want me doing that towards culture. He wants me to have an optimistic outlook to see that Jesus can penetrate any situation and circumstance. I should be so joyful and hopeful as a Christian. And the message of the gospel should just roll off my tongue because God is moving in my life. And now I want to see him move in someone else's life. That's what Isaiah is saying. Listen to your future self. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord. Does that sound like a moldy sponge to you? Not me. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praise to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitants of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Listen, your future self is like, don't be ashamed of the gospel. It's the best message in the world. Tell people about it. It's not how much, you know, you're, you're excited about your political party right now or, or, or how you inherited a million dollars off chance or something like that. That's not the best message in the world. The best message in the world is that God's chosen to love you. And everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the core of who we are. You know, I was reading about the formation of the Constitution of India in 1940. 
And it turns out that while they were debating through the articles, it was on the floor under consideration that they would prohibit or outlaw proselytizing in India. Now, one of the members on the floor speaks up. By the way, they're not a Christian. And they say, we can't do this. We will be involving ourselves in a self-contradiction. We cannot do this. And everyone's like, what are you talking about? Why can't we do this? And he says, because earlier in our conversation, we have guaranteed the freedom of religion and Christians must share the message with others. It's part of their religion. And after he explained it and showed them more about the Christian faith, the article fails and he's spot on. It's part of the Christian message. Think about what Paul says in Romans chapter 10. He says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And then he quotes Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And I see when I look out at this church every Sunday, beautiful people who bring good news. You know, when you think about it, sharing Jesus with people takes on a bad rap because we kind of get into our headspace and we think, well, isn't that like shoving the Bible down someone's throat? Let me just say this, you are never called to do that. That's wrong. No, we're supposed to be winsome, enthusiastic, conversational. Tell me what you think. Let me hear where you're at in your faith journey. How can I, how can I connect your hand with the hand of Jesus? If you're open, if you're interested, if you're welcome to it. I love telling people about Jesus. And it can be a regular part of your life. It doesn't have to be something that makes you feel badly or guilty. God never intended it to be like that. It is the best message in the world and worthy of sharing. Friends, this message, Isaiah is saying, is a global message. It's to be made known throughout the earth. Did you see that in the text? That's why Katie and I are jumping on a plane on Thursday. We're going to head to Togo, West Africa. Some people say, well, why don't you just focus on your own backyard, the Cape? And I say, well, then, because I wouldn't be fulfilling the Great Commission. What does the Great Commission tell me to think about? The ends of the earth, but not just the ends of the earth. Local, regional, international, right? And I'm supposed to be involved at all three levels at the same time. And sometimes we kind of pit them against one another. Oh, you know, we need to just think about our backyard or we should only think about international missions. And I'm telling you, that's not biblical. We need to care about all three. We need to care about the local concerns here on the Cape. We need to know them intimately. We need to be involved in them. We need to care about what God's doing in the Northeast. And we need to care about Togo, West Africa at the same time. When you think about your future self in this passage, how do they sound to you? Now, does this sound like an individual that is really hating heaven? 
really doesn't feel good about where they're at and what they're doing and what their life's all about. I don't read that at all in the passage. There's just this joyful, optimistic, hopeful outlook here. Your future self is so happy. Why? Because they're dwelling with the happiest of all beings, God himself, and he's invited you to share into his joy. And something that I want us to walk away with every time we think about eternity is this, that we don't have to just wait for eternity to get tastes of heaven. We can have them now. You can delight in your story now. God knows you. He's chosen to love you, and that's an incredible thing. And you don't have to wait till heaven to experience the reality that God is enough. You don't have to be on an emotional roller coaster in life. You can find the all-sustaining presence of God in your life now. And here's another thing. It's a joyful life. You can experience that joy as you grow in your confidence in God's provision for your life. Of course, you, if you know Jesus and if you follow Jesus, you have the best story of all to tell people. He died for you. He rose again from the dead. Friends, this is what God is doing. This is why he's renovating you. He wants you to become the version of Jesus that you were always intended to be. Or another way of saying it is if... Jesus were to live your life, he wants you to live the way Jesus would have lived your life. And you can do that. Let me pray for you. Lord, as we celebrate what we are seeing here in your word, I am just so grateful that you have given us living water, the Holy Spirit. You don't ask us to live our lives for you without supplying the power. You've given us the Holy Spirit to dwell in our hearts and we can access that living water day after day. Uh, I, I thank you, Lord, that that can happen right here in church as we sit under the word. It can happen in our quiet time. I believe it happens as we're going about our day, working for you, living for you, investing in relationships for you, Lord. Thank you for being a renovating God, coming to us and choosing to love us and sending your son, Jesus. We praise you. In your name we pray.